Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, tonight we thank you for a place to meet. Um, We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together, and we thank you for a chance to step back and to hear from your word. We ask, Father, that tonight you would speak to us, that as we hear the refrain week after week in the series that we're in, that to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, we pray tonight that your Spirit would speak to us directly, that you would move in our hearts and open up our ears to hear what you have to say. Stir our affections for Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, at Redemption Hill, we are taking this summer to look at the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Um, It's a series looking at ancient Christian churches at the very beginning of Christianity and seeing the letters, some letters that were written to them, letters that were written from, through the Apostle John, who had been with Jesus through his ministry and his death and resurrection, and then letters that came from Jesus Christ directly to churches. And so in these letters, it's a gold mine for us because we see the things that Jesus celebrated in his churches and in his people. We see the things he lamented in his people. And so last week, we saw the, in the first church, we saw Ephesus. And Ephesus was a pillar church in the New Testament world. It was a church, Ephesus was the city that the Apostle Paul spent the most time in out of all of the places that he visited. And it was a city that we also have a letter that he wrote to that church. It was a church that people would have looked up to and esteemed. It was a church that, that by all accounts, was probably pretty sizable and, and one that people would have looked to for direction. And yet, we saw last week that the, the Christians in Ephesus had lost the love that they had at the first. And so Jesus wrote a letter to them to say that all of the things they were doing, the works they were doing, the deeds they were doing, the, the, they were fighting false teachers and, and trying to cling to what was true, that all of that was empty because they had lost love. Well, today we see Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. Um, and it's really kind of upside down from Ephesus. And Smyrna is a city that we don't hear about in the New Testament. It's, it, it was a small church and a poor church, and it was people who were suffering. But it's one that we, and, and, and honest, if we're honest, it's one that we would probably overlook if it was around us now. But in Smyrna, we see something essential for us. It's essential tonight, particularly for those of you who are suffering, for those of you that are struggling, For those of you that are caught in the midst of a difficult time and a difficult season in your life when you feel weak and powerless, when you wonder if Jesus even sees you and whether it's worth it. And the reason that the letter to Smyrna is so important for us is because in this letter, we will see that Jesus sees us in our suffering. This is what we have in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, verses 8 to 11. It's the shortest of the seven letters. If you have a Bible, you can open it. Um, It'll also be on the screen. 
To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the church of Smyrna, a little bit of historical background will help us to understand the importance of this letter. Smyrna was, in a, was while in the New Testament isn't a city we hear about a lot, and we didn't, don't hear about the church a lot, as a city, it was really an important place. It was, it was a port city and a, of major Roman importance, and they were very proud of how important they were. They were a city that had really ceased to be, had been destroyed, but then was rebuilt by the Romans. Um, and it's the only city of the seven that we see in Revelation that this is a communications route that, that Roman edicts would have gone out through. It's the only one of the seven that still exists as a modern-day city today. The rest of these we could go and see ruins, but, but Smyrna still exists. It, it goes by the name Izmir. And, and even now, it is the third biggest city in all of Turkey, only behind Istanbul and Ankara. And so this was an important place. And beyond that, in AD 26, which was during the life of Jesus Christ, before he was crucified and resurrected from the dead, they beat out 10 other cities to have an imperial temple built to Tiberius, the Caesar. So they were proud of that. Smyrna also had a large Jewish population that had settled there as part of the dispersion. And so they, they were, and these, these people were fearful of losing their freedom of worship. And there's actual record of these things, of, of the Jewish population and the synagogues in Smyrna turning against Christians and joining and siding with the Romans against them. Um, in the 80s uh, AD, the, the synagogue in Smyrna officially condemned Christians and, and barred them from coming into the synagogue. Synagogues, and so removed them completely from any connection to Judaism. And in the next, in, and in AD 81, Domitian became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he is the emperor that really turned the turned the heat up in pursuing and persecuting Christians and killing them. And so the Jewish people at the time saw that their religious freedoms and their freedom of worship was being threatened. That was part of how the Romans controlled the people around them. They, they realized as an empire, if we let people worship their gods, we can tax them all we want and, and they won't rebel against us. If we take away freedom of worship, there's more likely to be a rebellion. These Jewish people, though, realized that, that their freedoms might be threatened if they got lumped in with Christians. And so we see in Smyrna, way back in the 80s AD, the toxic combination that happens when religion is joined with power. There was also a bishop in Smyrna named Polycarp. Um, this is something that our staff team, we study for sermons together on Tuesday mornings, and on Tuesday we were lit up by this, or I was, and they played along. <laughs> So there's a bishop named Polycarp in Smyrna. He was appointed the bishop, began his ministry in AD 115. Now, Revelation, the letter, was probably written in the 80s to 90 AD. And, and Polycarp was a direct follower, disciple of John, the apostle. 
He knew John. John was his mentor. The guy who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote the gospel of John and three letters for second and third John. Polycarp was his, his, his mentee, his disciple. Um, and he was martyred. He was killed, burned at the stake in AD 155, just 40 years after becoming the bishop. So that was in this place. The, the reason this history is important for us is because what it shows us is that the letter to the church in Smyrna is not addressing hypothetical ideas. This was written to a people who were really suffering. This was written to people who really were headed into a trial that led to their imprisonment and their death. And Jesus was preparing them for it. Think about Polycarp. As the bishop of Smyrna, as things got heated up, as he was imprisoned, as he was persecuted and ended up being killed, think about how this letter, how much this letter would have meant to him having received it from John, who he had learned under, a man that he knew, words directly from Jesus for him and his church. And so this is a letter that's essential and important for us. Now, each of the seven letters follows the same pattern, and so over the next six weeks, including tonight, five weeks beyond tonight, we're going to see the same pattern throughout. Each one begins with a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes, and he proclaims a characteristic of himself. In chapter one, we see all of these characteristics together, but the characteristics are important to each one of the churches. And so last week in Ephesus, we were able to see that Jesus came and said, I am the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the golden lamps, the seven lampstands. What he was saying is that the lampstands are the churches. He clarifies that for us in the text, and he's saying, I am the one who is a sovereign over and in control over the head over my church. And, and that's important to the Ephesians because as he comes to the Ephesians, the emphasis that he has to the, to the church in Ephesus is you're doing all the right things, but you've lost the love that you have in the first. And if you don't repent and turn back and regain that love, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Your church will cease to be. And so the characteristic that Jesus proclaims of himself is essential for the Ephesians to hear that he is the one who has authority to make that kind of, of, a, of a challenge and a claim. So tonight, do you see what, how, what he says of himself? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is who Jesus is. This is who he proclaims himself to be to the church in Smyrna. And what he's proclaiming is the reason that he has the authority to encourage them and to call them to not be afraid, to call them to be faithful in following him is because he has gone through death and into life. But this is something that we need to hear. Whether you're new tonight and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're wondering what Christianity is all about, or tonight, if you've grown up in the church, maybe you need to hear this even more. We have a tendency to, to misunderstand and misconstrue our own stories and the story of the gospel itself. And we have a tendency to think about life as being cyclical. Think about it. What is the encouragement we give to somebody that's hitting, hitting a hard stretch? When people, somebody is really struggling, things are really hard, we come alongside them, we want to encourage them, we put our arm around them, we say something along the lines of, don't worry, you know, time heals all wounds, things will look up, things will get better. That might feel encouraging for a moment, but we don't know that. 
And things might not get better. And time doesn't heal all wounds. Sometimes time just makes wounds fester. And so what we want to do in being encouraging to people is really reflecting that we have this belief that life runs in cycles. The good follows bad, bad follows good, and we just, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. And so, it, but it doesn't, life doesn't actually work that way. Our lives don't actually follow that pattern. We see it on the same way in a hesitancy, right? Like when something happens in our lives that comes into our lives that was unexpected and good, which we don't have that many good surprises in life, right? It's not usually when you go, oh, I just didn't see this coming. Usually that doesn't mean that some opportunity has dropped in your lap. <laughs> but even when it does, you ever feel the internal hesitancy to actually celebrate something? Because it might be too good to be true? We have this idea that life runs in cycles. And it's good for now, but ride the wave because it's going to turn eventually. That's circular and cyclical, but it's not biblical. It's certainly not the gospel story. I mean, it's, it's more of a Mufasa theology. The gospel story isn't shaped like a circle. Paul Miller talks about it as a J-curve. That Jesus' entire life was one of suffering and sorrow that led to his death. But it's from that death that resurrection burst out. This is Jesus' story. He was a man of sorrows. He experienced the fullness of the human existence. This is the uniqueness of Christianity, is that it makes a claim that God himself took on flesh and lived a human life. That he suffered. That he lost loved ones. He experienced the death of people close to him. He experienced betrayal. He experienced hunger and thirst and tiredness. He, he suffered and experienced sorrow even, even to the point of death itself. He was killed and he, in his death he took on the fullness of the wrath of God against all of humanity's sin and he walked into that depth of sorrow, a depth of sorrow that none of us has experienced. But without going into death he couldn't have burst out in resurrection life. This is the gospel. And when Jesus calls his people and says, if anyone's going to come after me, they've got to take up their cross daily and follow me, he's not calling us to skip suffering and sorrow and jump from life to resurrection. If we're honest, most of us, that's what we're looking for in our faith. That's what we're looking for in spirituality and in religious pursuit. So if you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Christ and you want to know what Christianity is about, if somebody is selling you that Christianity is about a way to skip over suffering and sorrow in your life and experience temporal comfort and material comfort now, they're selling you a false religion that doesn't deal with the real stuff of life. We are going to suffer. We are going to experience sorrow and hardship. But the hope of Christianity is that Christ has gone before us and that, that, that he is actually present in and will meet us in the depth of that sorrow. And the hope is that he is the only one that can claim that he's gone before us into death itself but has conquered it with life. That's who Christ claims to be. That's the proclamation he makes to this church in Smyrna. 
And so then, after proclaiming, then Jesus has praise and criticism for the churches. And so as he comes to the church in Smyrna, the praise that he has for Smyrna is, he says, you're enduring persecution and suffering. You're standing against things. And, and there's a sense here that they're standing against something that's beyond anything they could have conceived. Because he's saying, people have turned against you. They are slandering you. you. You are in poverty, being slandered. He says, they don't see how rich and wealthy you are, but materially they're poor. And, and there are Jewish people that are turning against them. And these, many of these people were, came out of a, the background of Judaism. But what Jesus is saying is, it's worse than you think because Satan himself has turned against you. Satan himself is the one that's behind the, the cooperation and banding together of these authorities, the Roman and Jewish authorities, the same authorities that came together to kill Christ. But do you notice something? The church in Smyrna doesn't have a single criticism. There's not a call to repent of anything. There's not a corrective here. It's only Smyrna and Philadelphia of the seven churches. Only two of them escape without a critique. They're only praised. It's because the church in Smyrna wasn't living in a context that it benefited them to be a casual Christian. They suffered, and their suffering brought something of a purity of their faith. And so let's be clear. For many of us, this is not the background we've come from. By and large, it's not the American church experience to experience intense persecution and suffering that leads to imprisonment and even death. Um, that's not the background I've grown up in, and for many of us, that, that actually feels foreign. And so we grew up in a context where we call it persecution when somebody you know, looks at us funny because we tried to talk about Christianity. That's not the kind of suffering that they're enduring here. And we can look at places in the world where it is this costly to follow Christ. And we can see places where people do, it is a life and death decision to become a Christian. In the American context, the clo really the people that we can look to and see this kind of suffering for their faith and for what they believe in comes more from what we see historically in the African American church that, ha that has faced imprisonment and death for standing in, in, in the midst of following Christ. We can look to immigrant churches, but for much of the American church, there are other letters that will sting a little bit more. But still, there's something here that we can gain. We can see that suffering refines and purifies our faith. We see in Smyrna that there's no hint of a prosperity gospel of Jesus promising, things will go easy for you and you can use God as kind of like a cosmic genie in a, in a lamp to give you your wishes. It, it, Smyrna gets into the gritty reality of life. And so this letter, again, for every one of these seven is going to hit each one of us in a different place but tonight, for those of you that have come in here struggling and suffering, this letter is written for you. There's a reality that we, because many of us haven't grown up with an experience of this kind of persecution, we don't often have to deal with real, the real stuff of suffering tangibly enough in our lives. And so we, we want to skip 
suffering and skip. If, I mean, we're, at our core, we're Epicureans. Paul encountered Epicurean philosophers in the marketplace in Athens, and Epicurean philosophy was minimize fear and pain and, and struggle and, and instead focus only on pleasure and, and, and enjoyment and fun. Most Americans are Epicureans at our core. We don't want to do hard things. We want to be given good things. We want to experience good things. And so what we don't take time often enough to deal with is the real gap that exists in every one of our lives, that there is a gap between the things that we hope for and the things that we see God promise us in his word and the reality that we experience. And so we'll hear that nothing will satisfy our souls like God will satisfy our souls, that every one of us has a hole within us that, that, is, that only a relationship with God can fill, and it's only through Christ that we can have that relationship and experience rest and satisfaction for our souls. And we say yes and amen, and then practically in most of our lives, though believing that and hoping for that, we still feel an anxiety and a worry and an emptiness and a fear that we can't square with the things that we see and hope for. That gap is where real suffering and real doubt comes in. And we have different responses to it. For some of you, and this is, I think, typically more my response, your response to that is determination. That you want to say, you know what, I'm going to force my reality up to what I hope. And so I'm going to work harder, I'm going to be smarter, I'm going to achieve more, and I'm going to achieve the things, I'm going to make my hopes become true. For some of you, you've been beaten down enough that you've reached a point not of determination, but despair. And you've allowed any sense of hope to just come crashing down, resigned to the reality around you. There's a biblical response in the midst of that gap, though, in the desert place, in suffering. That response is lament. I'm increasingly convinced that most American Christians have no idea what lament actually means and how to do it. We don't want to lament because lament, we think about lament, and I don't know what you think about, like when I first think about that word, it's, it's hard to get over feelings of, you know, we, you know, that means you're weak. That means you're dependent. None of us wants to be weak or dependent. It means that, it, you know, we hear that because does that just mean complaint and self-pity? And so we get into this, this idea of like, we've got to remain calm and balanced and keep our emotions in check. We have this idea that, that, when, that when people are, are freely expressive of emotion, whatever emotion it is, that, that that kind of person, that's really actually just immaturity because they don't have control over themselves. Tell me that you guys don't ever look at somebody this way. It doesn't matter what emotion. It could be somebody that's really sad. And you have the response where there'll be empathy maybe initially, and then over time you start to go like, come on, pull yourself together. Maybe even yourself. I, find my, I tell myself those things. I am the meanest person to myself. <laughs> you, can see, you know, when people feel, and it could be any other emotion. It could be anger. It could be, it could be discouragement and despair. It could, be, it, it could be guilt. It could be gladness. Children, they don't have a filter on those things. You don't have to try to guess what my kids are feeling. They will tell you. It shows up in their posture, in their body, in their voices, and they'll just say, like, hey, I'm really sad today. Like, man, that is really self-aware. <laughs> I have a chart next to my desk to figure out what I'm feeling. 
but we don't know how to engage with our hearts. And when we start to feel imbalanced, we instinctively want to correct that tilt. Maybe it's out of fear that other people will start to realize that we're not, we don't have things together as much as we, as we present. People will see through the facade. I mean, church, I've, I struggle with these things. I'm a pastor. And there are times when, as a pastor, I feel like, oh, can I really actually be that open and that self-disclosing with people? Because if, I, if they know how out of tilt I feel, is that going to have, are they going to walk away? Or are they going to, what are the implications going to be? We feel like we've got to present ourselves as balanced all the time. But then you open up God's word. We read a psalm tonight and then sang a song that was built off of that psalm from Psalm 13. Do you hear how David prayed? His prayer sounded like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I think if somebody came into one of our community groups and prayed this way, afterward, most of us would want to instinctually come alongside them and say like, hey, God hasn't forgotten you. In Christ, we know that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's not hiding his face from you. He's shown himself in the incarnation. And in doing so, in, in a failure to lament, a failure to be able to open up before God and be open and honest and real with our hearts before him, will keep him at arm's length It'll make it look to everybody around us like we're doing okay, but in the end, it will split you in half. David doesn't have put up any airs with God. He, he comes honestly in front of him and says, where are you? How long are you going to leave me alone here? How long are my enemies going to win? How long are you going to fail to come through in what, on what you've promised me? That's not self-pity. Because David also believes that there is a God who is real and who is there and can actually handle his emotions. And in that, David closes the psalm by saying, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. But do you notice that none of those things are where David's at in the midst of Psalm 13? That's all in the future. He knows it's true. He knows that his, he's gonna, he knows that he will rejoice in salvation eventually. He knows God's going to come through. He knows that he will sing in time. But in the moment of Psalm 13, he's also willing to come before God and say, this is not how it's supposed to go. There's a gap between what has been promised and the reality I'm experiencing. See, real lament grieves the brokenness and imbalance of this world. It grieves the gap between reality as we experience it in God's promises while believing in a God who is there and can move and can act. We don't lament, though, I'm convinced, because we don't know how to, and the American Christian machine hasn't given us a model of how to actually do it. 
So Jesus comes to the church in Smyrna in the midst of their suffering and he says to them, I am the one who has gone through death into life. And it's from that foundation that he's able to say to them, I see you. I see what you're walking through. I see the reality that you're facing. I see the way that you're suffering. I see those who have turned against you. I see the slander that's being spoken against you. I see how things have gotten turned upside down. I see the tribulation. I see your poverty. I see your weakness. I see all of it. And as the one who has actually come through death to life, he, says, he, has, he has some exhortations for them, some calls to them. But you need to hear the comfort in this. So the first one he says is, don't be afraid. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, he's saying, this is what's about to happen. The devil's against you. Satan himself is standing against you. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. You're going to be tested it's going to be for 10 days, and we'll talk about that in a second. You'll have tribulation and be faithful unto death. So he says, don't fear and be faithful. Now, the don't be afraid, I think, again, like the devil himself has turned against them. The devil himself is turning authorities and those in, in positions of power against them. And it's, it would be one thing to hear from somebody that didn't have power to say, to say to us, like, hey, don't be afraid. It'll all be fine. But that's not who Jesus is. That's why it's so important that he tells them, this is who I am. Because he's saying, you might be killed. But he's already been there. He's gone before them. He's walked that path. You see, he's, again, this is what makes Christianity so unique, is that God is not distant and removed. He's not at arm's length. He's not a cosmic watchmaker that designed this place and wound it up and let it spin and now looks at it at a distance and just proclaims his creative power. No, he went beyond creative power, entered into the fullness of human experience, suffered, was killed, died in our place for our sin, but came out the other side of the grave victorious in life. And so he is the one who is able to say, I've been through that suffering. I've had people turn against me. I've experienced betrayal. I've experienced slander and lies. I've experienced losing people that I love. I've experienced all of it. And we read in Hebrews that he was even tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And so because of that, we know that Christ actually knows our experience in our life and is in the position to say, I've been there and I've gone through it, and he promises that he will meet us in the midst of it. You understand that even David looked ahead to that. In Psalm 23, when he talked about the valley of the shadow of death, he's, he said, even though I'm walking through that valley of death's shadow, death's dark shadow, he says, you are there. Your rod and staff, they come from me. Christianity is unique because we have the promise that God has gone into the valley of the shadow of death before us. And the promise that in the midst of our suffering, we're actually brought closer to his presence. 
Paul talked about this, the Apostle Paul, in a couple of places in particular, but he came to experience this. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about a, a thorn in the flesh, some intense suffering he had been given, and that he pleaded with God three times to remove it from him. But in the midst of that suffering, he said, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, he gave me the suffering. That's the downward slope of that J-curve. There was something intense and painful in his life that brought him to the end of himself. And in the midst of that valley, he was finally able to hear Christ's voice to him as Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul tasted something of this that, that is beyond what I think I can fully claim. He says in Philippians chapter 3, um, he says... That he, oh, that I might know Jesus, him, in the power of his resurrection. Listen, I think there are a lot of us who are Christians who would love to stop that verse right there. I want to know Jesus. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. I would ex- want to experience victory and triumph and, and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to experience all of that. But do you see that what Paul says? that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul knew that walking through suffering and sorrow and death itself in order to taste resurrection life was better, it was sweeter, it was more powerful than skipping suffering and only sticking with life itself. He knew that life itself was going to be fleeting and suffering was going to come and he was saying that he longed to taste in the sufferings of Christ knowing that Christ is the one who has gone before him and has the power to bring life from death. Now listen, so Jesus is the one that says then, do not fear. This has been something that for me, I've, I've, been, I've learned and it has been changed and reshaped in me even over the past five years or so. There was a time and I'm, when I was you know, in seminary and in, uh, working at other churches and even in the beginning days of planting Redemption Hill Church that it is so easy to get so enamored with the strange Christian celebrity subculture which you don't realize how strange it is and how small it is until you actually step outside of it for, and take a breath and realize that to be like a cool pastor is like being a tall jockey. That's not a thing. But the reality is that there are conferences and books and, and articles and blogosphere and unending content all the time and the vast majority of it is triumphalistic. It's victories. And there'll be a little suffering along the way because you have to to tell a good story. But it's always in the terms of like, ah, I almost burned myself out and almost destroyed my family and did that, you know, building this church of 10,000 people. But now I've come through on the other side. And you go, okay, so what is the lesson there? I'm going to work myself to death and try to burn out and almost destroy my family, but I'll get exactly what I want out of it. That's a terrible lesson. That's not how most of those stories go. Most of those stories for pastors go more like, I burned myself out and destroyed my family. <laughs> and now I'm alone. <laughs> 
I've come so much more to appreciate seasoned, older pastors who have faithfully served in obscurity for decades. Those are the guys I want to be around. Guys who don't have a big platform. Who, don't, who aren't triumphalistic success stories. Guys who know what it is to walk alongside real people in real sorrow for decades. Guys who have sat and held the hands of people on their deathbed. Guys who have walked through the muck and the mire of pleading for God to bring a marriage back together. Because that's the stuff of real life. And it's in real life that God actually meets us. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And he says, be faithful, even to death. He's saying, don't let go. Don't let go of Christ. Don't let go of his name, of his word, of his promise, of his life. and, And there's the promise that he's saying, you are going to suffer. It's going to be hard. But there's something better coming. He's saying, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is echoed in Peter's words, who had walked alongside the Apostle John and alongside Christ, as, as Peter says at the end of his, of his first letter. He says, after you've suffered a little while. See, this is the hope, that, that if you're a Christian, you actually have real hope to cling to. It's not that your life is going to be easier and better and, and calmer and more comfortable now, but he's saying, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christ himself will give you the crown of life. He says that suffering's coming for this church for 10 days. There's all kinds of debate over what the 10 days are that isn't worth too much of our time now. It could be reminiscent of Daniel. If you go back and read the story of Daniel um, in in the book of Daniel, there were two periods of testing for 10 days where Daniel and his companions were being pressured to bow down to the, the emperor. And so it could be an allusion to that, but what we see in Revelation is that Jesus is saying there's an intense time of testing coming, there's an intense time of suffering coming, but it's limited. It has an end point, even if that end point is death itself. But do you see the promise? Again, for every one of these churches, we see a description of Christ. We see praise for the church. For most of them, we see a criticism of the church. We see warnings and encouragements, and for every one of the seven, we see a promise. And the promise to the church in Smyrna is that they will be given a crown of life. This has connotations of the games, Greek games and Roman games, where the winner of a race would be given a wreath to place on top of their head as a crown. That was their their prize, their victory, to show that they had run the race well. But the crown that Jesus promises to his people is the crown of life, because he's the one who has power to bring life from death. Paul had talked about this crown as well, a guy that understood suffering. And he said, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he says, I, didn't, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box like one beating the air, but I discipline myself. I keep my body under control so that after preaching to others, I, wouldn't, I won't be disqualified. So the promise of Christ is a crown of life. And so listen, this is what it comes down to tonight for us, church. The church in Smyrna was suffering. They were facing a hard reality. 
They were persecuted. They were experiencing and they were living in that gap between the promises of God and the hopes they had and the reality in front of them. As Jesus came to them, he came to them not giving empty platitudes, not candy coating and sugar coating things, not giving an emptiness of, oh, don't worry, it'll get better in time. He came to them dealing with the gritty reality of life and, and acknowledging, but in the midst of that, what I want you to see tonight is that, is that Jesus came as the one who has gone through death itself. He's speaking as the one who can bring life from death. And so for you tonight, if you are in a valley, if you're feeling the pressure of death's dark shadow around you, if you're living in that gap and you're looking around you and, and you haven't felt the freedom to join David in the prayer of saying, God, where are you in the midst of this? You need to come openly before him. Cry out to him. Stop holding back. He sees you. He knows what you're walking through. He knows everything about you. He knows the agony that's going on in your own heart that you're not even acknowledging. He knows the pain of what you're experiencing right now, and he knows the pain that you're going to experience in the road ahead. But Jesus has also gone before you. So I want you to hear his voice tonight saying to you, don't be afraid. He's the one who's gone through death and into life. And the power and the glory and the majesty and the hope and the promise of resurrection is better than the promise of mere life. Be faithful. Cling to him, because that's the only hope that you have, and he is the one who has the power to bring life from death. So the message to the church in Smyrna is that the second death has no power over Christ and those who are his. He's the one who has gone before us and suffered and died. And so his resurrection gives us the hope that we can be free to be freed from fear and a freedom to be faithful to him. And if you're suffering tonight, you need to know that he sees you and he knows it. The Bishop Polycarp, who we mentioned at the beginning, who was a follower, a disciple of John, the apostle, who was receiving this letter as a bishop of Smyrna and, and, and who, whose ministry was backed by this letter, I can only imagine how sweet these words were for him even as he went to his death. As the story has it, the, the, the soldiers grabbed Polycarp. They, nailed, they went to nail him to a stake where he was going to be burned. But Polycarp is recorded as having stopped them from nailing him to the stake. And what he said is this. He said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from these nails. He prayed aloud. The fire was lit and his flesh was consumed. He went to his death, but he went without fear, faithful, knowing that Christ had promised him the crown of life. One of his followers and observers said that as he, as he was burned, his flesh was not his burning flesh, but almost as baking bread or as gold or silver refined in a furnace, that Polycarp clung to these words from Christ. And so... 
tonight, the only hope we have in suffering is in him. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Father, would you help us? We need it. Um, Some in this room are walking through deep valleys and don't see a way out. So, Father, I plead that by your spirit, you would meet them even in this moment. That they would sense and feel your presence. That they would hear your voice. That they would, they would feel the comfort of Christ's words saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Rest. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Father, we thank you that you don't minimize the suffering we experience, that you're not removed from it and distant from it, but that you meet us in the midst of it. And so we ask that we would feel your eyes turned toward us in compassion and love, and that we would really be able to find true hope that you have given us the crown of life in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.